0: I'm and you're listening to Infra Intelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. In today's episode, as Canada sets out on a transformative journey to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, we're going to need a powerful boost from wind, solar, and other green energy technologies to meet this ambitious and necessary goal. These technologies will play a central role in driving the rapid decarbonization and massive expansion of electricity production required to make net zero a reality. Wind and solar energy infrastructure projects have contributed more to Canada's installed electricity-generating capacity than any other technologies over the last decade. Much of this growth is attributable to significant cost reductions, which are a product of game-changing technological improvements. In the following discussion, I'm joined by a panel of green energy experts to tackle the big questions. What role will each energy source play? What are the obstacles to reaching net zero? Where will funding come from? And what role should First Nations and Indigenous communities play to help close the infrastructure gap? Good morning and welcome to Renew Canada's infra series. My name is Corrine Lins and I'm the content director here at Actual Media. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion on harnessing green energy to achieve net zero. In January we talked about disaster resilience, in March we did a deep dive into public transit projects, in May we discussed efforts to expand capacity at several of Canada's largest ports, and today we're checking in with the experts on harnessing green energy. Don't worry, if you missed any of those, you can access recordings on Renew Canada's YouTube channel. We have an impressive lineup of speakers joining us today. All right, so let's meet our experts. I'll have each of them spend a couple minutes to introduce themselves and quickly tell us just a little bit about where they're from, what their role is, and what perspective they're bringing to today's discussion. First up, we have Andrew Moles from TCL. And then we're going to call Robert Ornung from Canadian Renewable Energy Association up next. Hello, Robert. Good morning. And then we have Chief Charlene Gale from the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. Welcome, Chief Gale. There she is. Beautiful. And then we have Pranav Shah from the Canadian Infrastructure Bank.
1: Good morning.
0: Beautiful. Look at that. We all nice and smooth. All right. I am going to start, uh, Pranav, I'm going to start with you. You're top top left for me, and I'm going clockwise here. Would you take just a moment and introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from?
2: I'd be true. Hi everyone, I'm Pranav Shah, I'm the director on the investments team at the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Uh, for those who may not know, the Canada, the Canada Infrastructure Bank is a federal ground corporation with a mandate to deploy $35 billion in investments in five priority sectors. We seek to develop new partnerships uh, and bring a private sector focus to achieve Canada's environmental and sustainable goals in infrastructure. We use these relationships to attract and co-invest with private sector and institutional investors in greenfield infrastructure projects. We're an outcomes-focused impact investor. So our goals are to value essentially the outcomes for projects and we're not risk-return uh, associated like other investors would be. And uh, we, again, um, don't have a one-size-fits-all investment process. We try to tailor, build a bespoke process for each of our investments, try to understand the risks that each are facing and try to create a solution that, that bridges that gap.
0: All right, Robert, you're up next.
1: Uh, sure. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Robert Horning. I'm the president and CEO of the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. Uh, we represent almost 300 companies that are active in the deployment of wind energy, solar energy, and energy storage across Canada. And those companies are working to deploy these projects at multiple scales, large utility scale, wind and solar farms, or the solar panels that people are putting on their roofs in, in at home. Um, we are, very keen uh, and and believe that our technologies are going to play a very large role in uh, facilitating Canada's journey to net zero. We think we're going to need a tenfold expansion of wind and solar energy capacity in this country in the next 30 years to get there. And we are going to be working to advocate for the responsible and sustainable development and deployment of these technologies across the country. We are a national organization but we are active in advocacy work at all with all provincial governments as well as at the federal level. All right, Charlene, over to you.
3: Hi guys, so sorry I have a lot of background noise. <laughs> so I'll have to put my um, mic on mute here and there. There's equipment working behind me. Um, so calling in from the traditional territory of the Fort Nelson First Nation up at Toad River Mountain, um, we're Treaty 8. Um, our territory is about the size of Switzerland. Um, I'm also here representing the First Nation Major Projects Coalition as the chair. Um, if you aren't familiar with our organization, the First Nation Major Projects Coalition started with 11 nations and we have over 90 nations in seven provinces and territories. And we're currently working on a project portfolio of capital of 17 billion. Million, um, spread over seven different projects where all of them involve equity positions for the First Nations partner. One of our main goals is to enhance the economic well being of our members by supporting them to make informed business decisions and major resource and infrastructure projects. And I'm just really glad to be zooming in today to talk about some of these projects, including um, the geothermal two day car project we're building in Fort Nelson First Nation that's 100% owned by our people. So happy to be here. All right, Andrew, <laughs> go ahead.
4: Thank you, Uh, Andrew Moles. I'm with PCL Construction uh, Director of our solar business. Uh, So that spans all of US, all of Canada and Australia and anywhere else we may venture out to. Uh, We're a Canadian based construction company headquartered in Edmonton, uh, first established in Saskatchewan. I've been in renewable energy since 2009 uh, as one of the members of PCL who wrote a business plan based in Ontario to open a renewable energy division solely focused on that sector. Uh, We had a lot of success in solar, some success in battery storage, and we made the choice uh, for myself to take the helm and take it outside of Ontario across Canada, US and Australia. about seven years into our venture uh, and to focus solely on solar and best with my group. Uh, I do have a counterpart who's focused on wind, who sits in our Edmonton office. Uh, I'm based out of Toronto, uh, as you can imagine, I'm on planes often and, uh, and traveling a lot and trying my best to offset my carbon footprint with making good things happen uh, in the solar business. I used to sit on Cancia's board uh, prior to the amalgamation uh, to Canria, I sat as vice chair of the utility scale solar division of SIA, uh, which is the US organization uh, for a few years and generally passionate about this industry, uh, clean energy and moving ourselves forward from carbon producing energy sources and extremely excited uh, and honored to be on a panel with such great people today and, uh, and hope I can be of value from my perspective from the construction industry specifically.
0: As we as a country set out on what is bound to be a transformative journey to reach net zero GHG emissions by 2050, it's clear we need a powerful boost from the wind energy, solar energy, energy storage and others. These technologies, along with others, will play a central role in driving rapid decarbonization and massive expansion of electricity production required to make net zero reality. So today we're going to dive in and talk about how far we've come so far, What challenges remain, what solutions are needed, what investments required and how we're partnering with our indigenous communities. And of course, we'll talk about projects and successes um, that give us good reason to be very optimistic for the future. So let's begin in what I consider my favorite places, which is basically getting a lay of the land. The consensus is that it'll take a combination of green energy sources to get to net zero. What role will each source such as solar, wind, geothermal and energy storage and others play in our decarbonization journey? And I know that's a big question, um, but I'm kind of just opening the floor up here. So, Robert, perhaps we can get you to kick us off um, and then I'll get you know, the rest of the panel to jump in.
1: Sure. Happy to try and, and kick it off. I think we're <laughs> going to need a very diverse set of energy sources, non-emitting energy sources to move us to net zero. And I think we have to start first and priority number one has to be looking at energy efficiency. We have to be thinking about how we can use our existing energy as efficiently as possible and the new energy that we're going to need going forward. And we're going to need a lot of new energy in particular, we're going to need a lot of electricity. If you look at all of the studies that have examined pathways to net zero, they all conclude that Canada is going to essentially need to double its electricity production between now and 2050. That's a mammoth to double our electricity production in less than 30 years. Um, But we need to do that because we need that electricity to help decarbonize other sectors like transportation with the explosion we're seeing electric vehicle growth and electric mobility in buildings and heat pumps that we're going to see become a greater part of our our sort of electricity infrastructure and also in heavy industry going forward. So when we look at that sort of massive growth opportunity, where is that gonna come from? Well, there's going to be a lot of contributors to it, but we're quite confident that wind and solar energy are going to be front and center in that. And why are they going to be front and center in that? It's because they're the lowest cost sources of non-emitting electricity available in Canada today. The cost of wind energy has declined more than 70% over the last decade. The cost of solar energy has declined more than 90%. And so when you look at that, we want to ensure that this transition, which is going to be moving at a pace and a scale that we've never seen before, is going to be affordable and we want to ensure that it's going to be reliable. And that means that these technologies are going to play a key role. The Canadian Climate Institute released a study just earlier this year that looked at studies that have been conducted in the last 18 months for pathways to net zero in Canada. And what those studies concluded was that we're going to have to move from about 6% of our electricity today coming from wind and solar to somewhere between 31% and 75% of our electricity coming from wind and solar by 2050 in an electricity system that's twice as big as it is today. So it's an enormous opportunity. There are real challenges, but there are also solutions. And we're keen, and I think we'll explore in this panel, how we can take the steps necessary to enable us to deploy these technologies at the rate required to enable us to achieve our goals.
0: Go for it, Andrew.
4: Sure. completely agree with Robert. Uh, There's no one solution to the electricity needs uh, of the future for Canada uh, to get to non-emitting renewable energy sources or or energy sources. We need to use a a multitude of technology. Solar and wind are very, very economical now. Uh, They weren't when I started in 2009 in this. I mean, we were putting solar panels up that had 90 watts in them. Now they're 750 watts. Uh, We were using inverters that were 250 or 125 kilowatts. Uh, Now we're seeing them at five megawatts. I think technology has significantly improved and it's significantly reduced the cost of this electricity generation. And I think there's still a lot of rumors out there that you have to pay to be green uh, and you have to pay more for renewable energy. And it's just not true anymore. Uh, the uptake globally is economical and the right thing to do and sustainable. I think making some key changes, opening some markets up uh, for private and, and for um, government and investment uh, will pave the way to make this possible. Uh, and, and I do think it's, it's going to be a combination, of course, and, and we have such a diverse grid uh, as it is uh and there's a lot of sources right now that that are clean and and should be relied upon for many years to come Uh, but there's more generation required and and there's more facilities reaching into life that frankly don't serve a purpose or likely won't serve a purpose in in our future grid
0: go ahead charlie
3: yeah, I um you know, I I believe that um, you know, some people are in denial that we're actually going through an energy transition right now. But um, you know, as First Nations we have big ambitions and we think equity ownership is the key to creating a brighter future for our people in this transition to net zero. Um, Across this country, First Nation people are the biggest owners of renewable projects other than governments and local municipalities. So that's something we have to keep in in the forefront. Um, This definitely is going to be a bumpy ride and none of us want this to happen to us. We wanna lead it and we also wanna benefit from it. But to make that happen, we have to actually start thinking big and acting big and build back better. And that can't just be a slogan. It's actually a call to action. And I think as um, you start looking at this transition happening, you'll see Indigenous people are ready and they're stepping up um, to help position Canada better on this path. Um, when I look at all the projects that indigenous people are doing across this country, whether it's our nation with the geothermal project, LNG, um, wind, biomass, battery storage, uh, I definitely see us being a big player in this transition. And we want to do more of it because when it's done right and when we're involved meaningfully, it really elev- elevates our, um, the poverty in our community and addresses the legacies of colonization. So that's one thing that that I think um, going forward that people really need to understand that to um, get access to these critical minerals for lithium and and what we're going to need into the future, you're going to have to access indigenous lands. So, um, you know, we really want to want to be involved in this and the world needs more energy from Canada, especially considering the global energy shortages and impacts of the limited supply to the war of Ukraine and what's happening on the other side of the world. Um, you know, we have a really good opportunity if we can all come together, especially with Indigenous communities that are going to be affected by these extractions for these critical minerals going forward. And I just hope that, um, you know, we can actually really come together with industry and government, and like-minded people like yourself to make this happen, because we all know that in Canada, um, you know, we have the best environmental practices. And when you Involved the First Nation partner, we're one of the best partners because we just don't focus on the prosperity. We really balance that approach through economic prosperity and environmental stewardship. So I just, um, you know, really want to achieve, um, you know, good things with this energy transformation and, you know, really provide a low carbon project, um, you know, through the Fort Nelson First Nations geothermal plant, um, which I hope to get uh, a little bit more um, discussion on that in a little bit here. So thank you. For now, would you like to add your thoughts?
0: Sure,
2: absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with uh, more with the panel here. I think it' it will take a combination of the sources of energy that we've talked about, but it will differ. In different geographies like our grid is somewhat fragmented province by province and the challenges that each province and utility and system operator face in each of those jurisdictions is different right and so i, I particularly think storage has a key place in all of this because it's going to unlock the opportunities for renewables to have higher penetration rates and we're seeing this across the board like if you put your if you take the perspective of a system operator or a utility that's running the grid What they're trying to do because of legislation is remove thermal generation essentially from their grid and replace it with intermittent renewable generation. And so that in itself needs some sort of balancing tool. Right? And I think the role of energy storage, I think, is critical in unlocking those higher penetration rates. Um, I'd like to take i like to take the time to talk about our Oneida project in particular, which is a First Nations led project. Where we have the privilege of working with uh, Six Nations of the Grand River, who partnered up with a private sector developer, Energy Store, and went to the ISO in Ontario with the vision of how to build a storage project that takes on risks uh, that the ISO cannot take on, and also, you know see the vision in terms of this is a project that's unique to Ontario because of the dynamics of the Ontario power market, and it adds a balancing service that lets other renewables connect to the system in the future. So these are the types of partnerships we're trying to cultivate at the time.
0: I think we've got a good topic today because uh, we've got more questions than we've tackled ourselves yet already coming in, so that's a good sign. Although one of them is a self-proclaimed hot button topic, is nuclear energy green? Uh, I know nuclear was bound to come up at some point, so let's... Just take, take a second now. Would anyone like to comment on that? Go ahead, Robert.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just offer a reflection. I mean, nuclear is clearly non-emitting. And, right. uh, and I think from that perspective, um, you know, the role that nuclear is going to play going forward, I think, is going to be determined in in large part by economics. At the end of the day, we need, as, as we talked about earlier, we're going to need multiple, but it's a massive expansion we're talking about. We're going to need a lot of different technologies to do it. And ultimately because of the size and scale of that transformation, we're going to be looking to do that in the most cost-effective way possible. And I think if nuclear uh, is is going to prove to be cost competitive with other technologies in terms of providing that, it's going to get very serious consideration in terms of helping us to address this challenge.
4: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. SMRs are coming. There's pilot pro, uh, projects that have been announced. Um, there's still a bit of a ways out before we connect anything and get figure out the economic models of it. Uh, but if they can compete, uh, their market penetration is probably going to be significant and uh, and it's going to be a, a big piece of our, our grid moving forward. Uh, if they can't get the economics to, to work, then they're going to have trouble with penetration because frankly, there might be other uh, technologies out there. So it's, it's a bit yet to be seen how big of a market slice it'll it'll take. But certainly we're, we're at PCL, seeing that as a, a big opportunity for us in the future and, and we've got a team in front of it and we see that as uh, as something that's going to help us reach our goals for what we've been calling non-emitting uh, electricity generation.
0: All right, so let's uh, get back to the regular schedule questions. So the demand for renewable energy sources, there's no doubt, um, I think Robert mentioned that it. it's, you know, the need is doubling. So a uh, coming years we're going to have to figure out a lot of good stuff, but what are the challenges? So what are we facing? Uh, what are the challenges facing the governments and the private sector developers as we look to meet our missions goals? and I've noticed that the other question we have here is actually um, talking about extreme weather events and you know the need to make the grid more resilient. I would see that as one of those challenges, I think too so that might just fit right nicely into with this question. Uh, who would like to you know jump in and talk about the challenges a little bit first? Go for Robert
1: if, if nobody'll jump in I'll, I'll kick it off. Um, okay. I mean, I think there 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 are some real challenges. Uh, we're going to need to mobilize a tremendous amount of investment and activity to be able to move forward and and do this. Um, that's going to require first and foremost some policy certainty and clarity, okay. and in terms of going forward and sending clear investment signals. Uh, we have, you know, what happens to the carbon price after twenty thirty. Uh, What does a clean electricity standard really look like? What does net zero by 2035 mean? These are real questions that we we need clarity to work on and and work through. Um, We also have to recognize that the electricity system in 2050 is gonna look really different than the electricity system today. Um, It's gonna be much more decentralized, much more diverse, uh, much more democratic in the sense that many, many more uh, individuals and companies are gonna be producing power we don't have a regulatory and market framework that actually enables that. It's actually right now a barrier to that happening. So there are a lot of regulatory and market reforms that have to happen to enable us to capture the potential, the whole range of disruptive technologies that are out there that can bring us benefits right now going forward. Um, We are going to have to invest in new infrastructure that can be challenging in terms of going forward and and making that happen. Um, We need to ensure that that uh, that we're actually developing comprehensive strategies that support electrification in areas like transportation and in buildings and in industry, not just one-off measures, but really a comprehensive plan to get there. And we need to ensure that as we move forward through this transformation, that we take steps to ensure what people have described as a just transition. And in terms of ensuring that this does provide opportunities for disadvantaged communities, and, and, and Chief Gail spoke very well about the opportunities that are present and and that we need to capitalize on for indigenous communities as well going forward. So it's, it's, I mean, we can list a whole bunch of challenges, but we have to recognize that for every one of those things we talk about, we flip it over and it's a tremendous opportunity. And that's what we need to focus on.
4: I I can jump in next and there's plenty of challenges as you you touched on a bit, but province to province comes with its own challenges uh, Mm -hmm. with getting approvals uh, to start projects, connection approvals, uh, net metering opportunity. Uh, we see places that have had a lot more success driving the price down and opening up for more private investment, uh, really focusing on virtual net metering opportunity. <laughs> it's not available widely across Canada. Uh, so that's a huge opportunity to drive more investment and drive this market uh, getting. Um, getting larger scale projects opened where cost and economics pencil a lot better uh, in different provinces, such as Ontario, where it hasn't been available to the market yet. Uh, Labor is a huge potential issue. Um, This is a big, big energy transition. We are already tapped out in our country with respect to skilled trades and construction workers. To build out the infrastructure plans that we have, not including the energy transition. So, figuring out how we're gonna train people, attract, retain people, and frankly, get the quantity of people and equipment. And this impacts more than just the on site construction, but there's a whole support industry that goes with this in transportation and off site manufacturing and so on and so forth. This is a big wave that's coming that's gonna require a lot of people. Uh, and going to employ a lot of people. uh, But we need to make sure that we're preparing ourselves. And whether that means an increased focus on skilled trade, immigration, uh, or or other things, um, we we need to solve that problem as well, or we're going to have all these projects and no one to build them. Um, Of course, there's tariffs that are driving up costs um, that are in place right now. And there's a potential opportunity to shift more to a incentivized local manufacturer local content program rather than a tariff uh, foreign program. So there's some opportunities there where we could look at some smaller scale or tweaks to our current policies that make the investment more attractive and drive the cost down for the industry
3: um so i'll just uh go in here um education and training for trades is definitely a huge huge issue especially with the baby boomers retiring um, we've been working with our nation and the local municipality to do an eight-week program of introduction to trades for our youth and our members. And at the end of the 8 weeks program, they can decide whether they want to be involved in mill writing or pipe fitting or um, operations or or maintenance in that respect. But um, one of the big key challenges for Indigenous people to be um, involved in these projects is the access to capital. And that's competitively priced capital. Um, You know, we've had opportunities before where we were invited to have equity in a project. But by the time we went for financing, the financing rates were like credit card rates. So it didn't make um, sense for us to actively participate Um, Due to that. But uh, historically, as we know, um, you know, um, we have been part of our economies for over thousands of years. And, you know, when the Indian agent came in and, and nation signed treaty, we were pushed to reserve and stripped of our wealth. And it has made it hard for us now to provide the equity we need to be partners and to reduce the risk, therefore the cost of borrowing. Um, You know, times are changing. Some nations are at a better advantage than others, but um, that is one of the the key challenges that um, I see is to secure competitively priced capital for us to invest in these projects so that we can be leaders in this transition. You know, I I know that I've worked with the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. They've been really, really helpful in providing advice to us, especially with our geothermal project. But we need other financing, financial institutions to really look at this and come together because I think for us to be successful as a country and bringing everybody in in this transition together, we're gonna need a new financing system in Canada. Um, And that's in order for First Nations people to be true partners with a shared vision for this low carbon future. Without us, I don't think that this transition is going to happen. We've seen what happened with oil and gas transition. Um, There was a lot of failings there because First Nations people were continuing to be left behind and that's how the coalition was formed by the 11 communities that just had enough. Um, And they want to be, you know, meaningfully involved in these projects that are that are um, on their territories. And whether that is like a huge project, like a pipeline that covers a mass uh, amount of land where First Nations can come together as a group and work towards that shared finance financing because um, historically, you know, when we were pushed onto reserve, we watched the municipalities and your guys' communities grow. And now we want that for our communities because we need, you know, fresh drinking water. We wanna build our schools, our health and wellness centers and have the same opportunities as other Canadians in this country. So that's why I think it's really important that we're involved meaningfully and we have to overcome the challenges for First Nations to have access to capital in a meaningful way that has low interest rates that makes sense for us to to be involved in these projects.
0: Pranav, would you like to jump in with your thoughts on the challenges? Yeah, just
2: picking up on the last note there. So the, the CIB does have a targeted program for indigenous communities, where we've earmarked a billion dollars across our five priority sectors. So we're actively working with First Nations, Métis and Inuit to explore opportunities with them and, and enhance projects that are in their communities and hopefully give them a meaningful ownership in them as well. Um, but back to the, the the broader question around the challenges of, of uh, you know, increasing renewable energy like i think as i mentioned in my last comments the energy is complicated because it's jurisdictional right it's it's you have to look at it province by province and then you have to weave together this federal policy around emissions that kind of has to dovetail with each individual jurisdiction differently and so each jurisdiction is faced with different challenges right um and so at a high level if you put your shoes into against the system operator to the utilities shoes that are into their perspective um they have to rip out what they've already built, right? So there's a cost to that, and then they need to rebuild something that's cleaner, right? So appreciating that I think is the first challenge, right? they're making a solution um, that says that we acknowledge that there's tremendous cost there. There's also an opportunity to augment the grid and make it more resilient at the same time, right? But it all comes down to costs. And so i think that's where the bank in particular can be of, of assistance we you know broadly speaking across our five priority sectors we seek to bridge two types of gaps essentially or a combination the gaps are economic and risks right and so as we're coming up with solutions we're constantly asking ourselves what kind of risk can we remove away from the right there and share with the private sector right and things like volume risk things like price risk those are things that we can effectively help share and it's not always you don't always have the right jurisdiction where you can take that risk on perfectly. But there are circumstances across this country where you can take that on. And again, I point to our NIDA project where we've we've helped the the developers take that risk on, and it's it's led to a meaningful meaningful partnership between the ISO and those developers.
0: There are what I love about this conversation is we basically we talked about what the challenges are, but everybody went away right right ahead and actually offered solutions as well, and you know thoughts on what we need to do. So that's that's a very proactive group for you. Could, could I just yeah.
3: add to um, the, the risk? Um, yes. Just alluding to what he was talking to. And, you know, I think that when um, investors look at Indigenous people as partners, it's a good thing because if we're working together successfully, then, you know, regulatory approvals will be smoother, um, projects costs will be reduced, and we can build projects on time. Um, you know, investment uh, risk will be also reduced. And you know, You'll see you of having an indigenous partner. Um, also, with the indigenous knowledge and our people being on the ground, you, the environmental impacts will be lessened, and we'll be able to bring um, good practices to these projects by our, our involvement. Um, you know, we have been collecting cumulative impacts data since two thousand and ten. Um, in the Fort Nelson First Nation area, we have the Blueberry River Court case that um, talked about these cumulative impacts with the fracking industry that came in. So um, when we look at when we look at that, I think that um, um, by having Indigenous knowledge involved, we can analyze what's going on the land because the animals moved in a certain way, the insects do. Something. And we could provide that knowledge uh, firsthand to you right up front more faster than you can analyze your data. But um, when we're involved meaningfully, then you'll see more Indigenous businesses. You'll see more Indigenous communities benefit and contribute to the industry. Um, You know, you'll see our communities being lifted up and and built. And I think that, um, you know, this will this path going forward will create a strong economy for first nations and for canadians across this country and we want to be involved in our economies you know going forward in a meaningful way and i think that this is this is it um you know you 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 travel across this country and there's so many renewable projects that are happening in communities like i said with like solar panels um, in treaty territory we have wind farms Um, You know, there's just so many things that are actually happening and they might be happening on a small scale, but they're still happening. And, you know, the communities are running these these programs and these um, projects on their own within their own membership in remote communities. So got to remember that. So
0: we've talked a little bit about challenges,
3: trying to balance out
0: and be super positive with us as well, because there have been a lot of successes as well. And uh, in just doing a little bit of research ahead of this across a lot of news surrounding solar and just how how that's doing. So, Andrew, I'm going to start with you on this next one. I know PCL has seen some significant growth, the solar division, um, but I know you, you know you've been involved in the solar industry for a long time. So why don't you jump in and share some success stories with us in that sense?
4: sure and i think the biggest success story for the solar industry in canada has just been the significant decline in the cost uh, of energy production or electricity production and i look back to 2009 when i started doing some research and understanding what the landscape looked like and and we look back at some of those contracts Uh, with the OPA at that point in time uh, in Ontario and what those rates were. And there was some incentives to achieve those rates with domestic content requirements to drive a, a local industry forward, gain some experience. And we are a big benefactor of that program being PCL. We jumped in with both feet, not on the development side, but on the construction side. We learned the industry, we set up locally, Uh, And we were able to take that across the country into the U.S., into Australia. Uh, And for for Canadians, I mean, we're we're repatriating money from from other locations uh, based on a skill set that was built by an initially heavily subsidized industry um, that really got it it going. Uh, We see the rates come down significantly in Alberta. Uh, We're seeing contract for differences models and things like that. Uh, being put in place where uh, the electricity generation may actually be sold for more money than what the, the developer IPP is getting paid for it, uh, because frankly, the, the spot rate pricing is above the, the contract rate that, that was agreed. So that's a win. Uh, that's, a, that's a big win. And that's a huge success for the industry. Us as PCL, we, we rode the wave in Ontario. We've expanded um, Outside of, of Canada, not as much interest for, for this call, but what we're doing in Alberta right now, I mean, we, we built a very large project for Canada uh, a couple of years ago, and, and we're bringing online uh, in the very fast pace Canada's largest solar project, which is 692 megawatts of DC energy uh, capped at 465 at, at the connection point. And we're bringing that online from when we fully mobilize to to when we're going to be fully complete in about 15 months. Uh, And that's impressive on a global scale. That's that's not just impressive in Canada. That is uh, a real, real um, success for the industry uh, and specifically puts Canada on the map as as a country that can build solar uh, and renewable energy efficiently and effectively and For the ratepayers uh hopefully end up being savings for them at the end of the day because frankly uh, when you build it at that scale it becomes so much more economical
3: so one of our success stories is um so the fort nelson first nation has the three biggest gas plays in north america and uh, we were bombarded with fracking um in 2010 we didn't have a lot of knowledge of what that actually meant fort nelson first nation's been involved in oil and gas for over 50 years We're very industrious and our community enjoys being a part of the economy that happens in our territory. But, um, one of the uh, things that was a a stopper is when the provincial government said no environmental assessment for gas plants, that was a big, you know, alarm bell for our nation. So we had to ask the uh, government to actually, um, you know, take a step back and, and leave from our uh, meeting that we were having in Fort Nelson where we invited um, indigenous people from the Heisland Nation all the way to Fort Nelson from ship to shell that were going to be affected, along with federal and, and provincial and regulators uh, partners. So we could have a really good discussion how we could build this pipeline together. Um, that discussion went sideways with the uh, decision of no environmental assessment. Um, You know what Fort Nelson First Nation took a big stand on. Um, With that, the gas prices definitely crashed and we've seen um, a lot of oil and gas activity just leave our territory. So we were in a recession for it gave a lot of time for our members and our elders and our people really to come together to talk about what do we want to see moving forward for our economy and how are we going to be involved meaningfully and we know that's through equity. So the Fort Nelson First Nation <clears throat> partnered with the town of uh, the municipality to secure the biggest um, community forest in BC since then um, we have formed um, our own little partnership company uh, have a really um, good board of directors and we're looking at um, developing a pellet plant in fort nelson to start uh, reducing some of the emissions um, with the dirty fuel that people are are burning in this country Um, and then what we're looking at is a bright green um, hydrogen facility where we're doing a study to see if we can use the waste materials from the pellets, the stumpage and, and different uh, wood fiber out there to create bright green hydrogen. That is uh, under investigation and we're just studying that. But um, the biggest um, success that I would like to share is that Fort Nelson First Nation had the Clark Lake G- the Clark Lake um, gas field and it has now been depleted after 50 years and it did provide a lot of orange source revenue to our nation over time and now that it has been depleted we have repurposed that site for the geothermal site, which is supposed to produce 7 to 15 kilowatts of power, which um, would be able to power about 14,000 homes in Fort Nelson. And if you've ever been to Fort Nelson on the Alaska Highway of Mile 300, you know that we don't have 14,000 homes, let alone 3,000 people when the economy's really low. But, that, but that's huge because this facility is going to be owned by our people 100%. We don't have another partner. Um, You know, we're working with like-minded people like the CIB who's been very helpful with providing advice on how we can be successful. Um, We bring that to our memberships and they make the decisions through the day tie. Corporation, But really, really excited about that project because up north here we run on diesel. Um, I'm sitting in our territory about two and a half hours from my from our reserve, um, you know, and everyone's running on propane or diesel or some other, you know, fuel that we want to try to transition off of. Um, You know and um, food security food security is another huge issue in in the north you know as you travel up north in nwt yukon and, and alaska the cost of food is rising we already see that in our local cities and towns um you know it would blow your mind if you were at the market in nwt at uh You know fort good hope and you go to try to buy a steak it could be up to 80 bucks to buy that steak where you go buy it in vancouver for maybe 20 dollars 15 dollars so that just kind of puts things in perspective it it costs a lot to to have food so with the geothermal facility, if we can get 100 greenhouses going and provide fresh food affordable to our cousins up north, and that's something that we look forward to being able to do with the heat rights. And um, you know, the the drill site is actually on site right now, and um, we're looking at what the brine will bring. So maybe there's opportunity for lithium and other critical minerals that we're going to need for this transition. So um, we're learning and we're willing to, to share our knowledge with the world as we move forward on this project because it's one of the first in, in Canada. So if you're traveling through Fort Nelson, please reach out to the Fort Nelson First Nation and we'd be glad to, to host you in our community.
0: Uh, Pranav, Robert, either of you would like to add on successes?
2: I see I think we're seeing a number of transactions across the country again, we have conversations going on with each of the utilities in all the provinces and, and territories. We're seeing an increased reception to you know, these discussions around implementing renewables in a more strategic way, right? Like where can we share with, with the utility and with the private sector? this volume and price risk and we're seeing that in in kind of combination with okay here's a wind farmer here's a solar farm here how do we supplement it with the batteries so we can actually replace an entire natural gas facility right and so those are conversations that we couldn't have two or three years ago but are starting to take flight and starting to really move forward in a quick manner.
1: Yeah, I can just add a couple of things, uh, and I'll speak more to trends. I mean, the cost trend that Andrew spoke about has been critical in terms of something to be very positive about going forward. Um, The power of consumers is increasingly obvious. So if we look in Alberta, um, where we have a deregulated electricity market, just in the last two years, there have been 2,000 megawatts of new wind and solar energy projects announced because of, of responding to corporate demand wanting to to procure that power. And we're starting to see across the country uh, innovations in in regulatory structures in provinces like Nova Scotia and Saskatchewan also to respond to corporate demand because there's this growing interest. Why can't I buy this power? And so we're starting to wrestle with how to do that. Building on what Pranav said, initiatives like uh, the clean electricity standard have fundamentally changed the conversation in Canada. Uh, We're now looking at a much broader range of options and being much more innovative and creative in terms of thinking about how we can combine different technologies to move towards achieving our objectives. And I guess the last thing I'd just say is I think on the, uh, you know, Indigenous clean energy uh, released a study now probably a little over a year ago, highlighting that, you know, there were 70 projects already in Canada, wind and solar projects that had uh, Indigenous equity ownership within those projects. And that's really just the start of a wave that's coming. I think it is now standard procedure within these industries to ensure that you look for those opportunities to build those partnerships and relationships going forward. You see governments increasingly mandating that new development has to have those those components. And that's all very positive because aside from just being the right thing to do, it has a whole range of other benefits to support the transition as, as Chief Gail was talking about. Earlier.
0: Well, we've heard the term investment coming up a fair bit. In terms of the need for clean power investment, what are the opportunities for public funding, such as you know, the Canada Infrastructure Bank, Pranav, and private sources to play a role in getting green energy projects built? Um, Pranab, it feels like the right place for you to start on this one. So I'll let you jump in. <laughs>
2: Happy to start there. Um, I'd like to take the time to maybe talk about our relationship with the province of Nova Scotia. Um, Some of you, some of you may have seen uh, a a recent auction that they have held for renewables in that province, and it really highlights our relationship with them because we've been working with that province in particular for about two to three years now to help them on their mission of decarbonization. Right, so they're being proactive and saying, look, we've we've got an existing thermal footprint that's quite heavy, and we need to figure out how to get that offline as quickly as possible. And, and use uh, the immense wind and solar resources that they have more, mostly wind in that province to kind of help that transition along. And so what we designed with them is a royalty product that was made available to all bidders. Um, and what it essentially did is it helped lower the cost for all the bids on equal terms, but it also shared some of that end of life risk with the bank. Uh, so traditionally that'd be held with just equity, but we were taking risk on what happens after that initial contract that's awarded Ends. So, to the extent it doesn't materialize, we will then not take as much of a return, right? And so, we, we thought that was an equitable way of sharing in that risk. And it really added. Um, an accretive financing package to a lot of communities in particular that wouldn't have access to capital otherwise. So we thought it was a kind of a, a great way of kind of doling out a lot of participation from the CIB in a way that closes or helps to close the economic gap when measured against other forms of generation and shares in a risk that traditionally equity would have to hold.
3: Um, I just, I still feel that there's an outdated view of, among some players in industry um, that Indigenous groups are more of a cost center to the project and that we're a risk to be mitigated through cash buyouts and other tactics. And sometimes I call this the bead and blanket approach. But I think there's also another number of people in corporate Canada that are waking up to what I've known all along that Indigenous people you know, add value to partnerships. And by partnering with us, we can increase the long-term profitability of a project. Um, we can raise the ESG ratings of that project and de-risk investment from the unresolved Indigenous interests. Um, what I'd hate to see is this transaction, this transition happening with uh, so much conflict with the media. You know, they always draw to um, they, they always draw to the, the challenges of a, of a story, but they don't look at the successes. And I know that some media outlets are really trying to change that and how they uh, report their stories and, and focus more on the positive side of that. But we, we are aware that due to the lack of um, direct interaction between the financial sector and Indigenous groups on an investment screen basis that media reports are often relied upon and influence decision making, so that's a problem that we're trying to solve through the First Nation Major Projects Coalition. We really want to see people that uh, people to see that there is value um, in in partnering with indigenous people. And you know, last um, April, we had a very successful conference where we brought in over 1300 people at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver. And there was a number of different industry types that were just blown away by the forward thinking of our membership and and you know the commercially focused agenda that we had Um, you know we look forward to being able to continue to have those discussions because i think it um really reflects on you know how we can do this transition smartly um, that respects and includes community interests um wholly and i think that you know this partnership is a two-way street you know and the coalition has a really important um place uh, an important role to play in this conversation and this dialogue. And I think that the more deals we do with true indigenous partnership, the more we're going to change minds on the outdated ways of thinking about indigenous groups as financial partners. And that's one thing that I always say is don't underestimate the ability of my people, they just keep showing up and they're really innovative and they're strong, they're proud, they're self-reliant and they just like, just just surprise me every day with their ability and, and their thought process and how they just want to move future generations forward and when I say future generations um, you know I don't just think about our grandchildren and our genera- seven generations moving forward I think about your grandchildren and how do we work together um, to move this transition you know a hundred years from now a thousand years from now because we're definitely going to need it and we all live on the same planet. And we all want the same thing to be able to look after our families and to live in a really good environment. So I just uh, wanted to add that. Thank you.
4: Th- thanks for, for touching on that. And you were touching predominantly from the financial side. We have a lot of experience as a company working with Indigenous communities in all aspects of construction. Uh, so different sectors, I personally have had the pleasure of working uh, with off-site manufacturing, assembly, and construction work with uh, a number of different communities, and you hit the nail on the head. If it's done right, it's value add. Uh, it's not cost add. Uh, and there's um, there is a preconceived uh, opinion on that that I think is old, outdated, or was never correct. Uh, and and I just wanted to say from the construction's perspective. If you get it right, it can be very advantageous on the construction side of the business Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, And you talk about financing opportunities. Uh, We work a lot with Export Development Canada, uh, the EDC, uh, when we're doing work outside of Canada. uh, We've also been in conversations with them for support for local projects to gain experience in new technologies or newer technologies that can be exported afterwards and that we could be building in other countries outside of Canada afterwards. And they've been very receptive and very open to uh, to working locally first and then exporting that expertise later. So there, there's a few different avenues where the, the government funding is, is there and there's some programs there. And I think just more education and more access uh, for others uh, would, would be ma- – make great steps towards, uh, towards getting there. And we, we talk about solar and wind, but uh, SMRs came up earlier. Uh, hydrogen came up earlier. Uh, renewable natural gas, uh, that's, that's uh, a real topic right now, waste energy, things like that. Uh, these are the type of industries that haven't really kicked off too much globally and specifically in Canada uh, where those type of financing options are, are available as well.
3: Yeah. And I just wanted to also say is that um, some companies are even going a step forward and they understand the situation that First Nation people are currently in. Um, So what I've seen in my territory is developers and investors coming in and saying, look, we want to build this project. And, you know, at any time that you don't feel comfortable or your people don't want to move forward, we're going to pull out and we're not going to build the project. However, if you want to be involved, we're going to give you equity and we're going to give you 49 percent equity. Don't worry about the investment don't worry about the financing we're going to build the project we're going to turn the key and then we're going to come and help you go get the financing so that you can get your equal share of, of revenue and um, equity into this project so that you can look after your people for the lifetime of the project that it will be operating in your territory and I found that very very helpful and that um, you know is uh, really really helping move the project forward where we're working in collaboration um, to um, you know, get past some of the policies and regulations that really put a damper on First Nations so that they can't be involved. So I just wanted to um, also talk about that model of what's happening in some of our communities already.
0: I cannot believe how quickly we're whipping through this. I have just seven minutes left already. Um, One topic that we haven't, there's several topics that we haven't got to yet. We're going to need to do a follow-up webinar, I think. But um, one of the big topics that keeps coming up, and we've talked about it from an investing perspective, but Also, I mean, how can the private sector and all the various levels of government collaborate, not just to accelerate investments, but in general to reach net zero? I mean, obviously, we need the money to make a lot of this happen. But we've also heard, I think, from Andrew, and I know we have this issue in most industries, that provinces have different regulations. There's different policies across the country. How can we be better collaborating across the country to get to net zero that much quicker?
3: I was just going to say that, um, you know, when... Uh, Industry, our investor looks at developing a project. The first thing that you should do is go to a First Nation day one. If you wanna be successful is really include them into the project. I already talked about how you can reduce the costs. Um, First Nations know where projects can and can't be built. I've had this challenge myself. Um, The last thing I wanna be doing is sitting in a courtroom Uh, fighting with industry when we could actually build a project together meaningfully that meet both our values and the interests on the land Um, so that's one thing that I wanted to say Um, I think we just need to come together Um, you know one of the panelists talked about you know the problem from province to province and how we all operate differently we need to open the doors and start being collaborative and not make this a competition between Alberta and Ontario or BC in Newfoundland, uh, we really need to really look at this transition as a holistic view for this country. This is the best place in the world to build these projects. And if we, you know, take note to what our membership have been saying from the coalition is to include us from day one, I think we'll see a, a huge change and um, we have a lot to offer. So I think the more we just come together and uh, look at the policies and regulations holding us back in this country to move these renewable projects forward, we'll all be successful. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I
1: would, I would support everything that was just said and then would, would, would sort of move on to speak as well about sort of the, the relationships between provinces, particularly in terms of electricity. I mean, electricity is primarily an area of provincial responsibility. So the federal government has fairly limited leverage in terms of of moving that forward. Um, But we have seen essentially historically, uh, you know, we really have amongst the provinces, 10 unique, different electricity systems that, uh, you know, the operators of those systems are working to optimize those systems, which is great. We want that. But what happens with the limited amount of cooperation occurs is that nationally we have a suboptimal system. And that's quite common. And that shows up in terms of how we're interconnected. It's very challenging to increase interconnections between provinces. Uh, We have different regulatory frameworks. You cross a border and all of a sudden things are totally different, causes issues. We don't have common operational procedures in terms of electricity between provinces necessarily either. And so this does pose a real challenge only because we know that to get, again, to move at the speed and scale that's required, that sort of collaboration is going to be absolutely essential going forward, especially if we're looking for cost-effective outcomes. So we're starting to see more discussion like that in Atlantic Canada. You hear discussion around the Atlantic loop and sort of joint regional planning. You see Saskatchewan and Manitoba engaged in more conversations about how they can support each other moving forward to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We need to see more of that in Canada if we're going to be successful.
4: And I, I can speak from construction and and, and project side of things Um, without driving up the cost with tariffs, find ways to incentivize and drive local manufacturing markets and to find ways to attract the labor, whether it be local with training um, or whether it be foreign uh, to build these projects as economically as possible and remove as many gating items as you possibly can to the process uh, at the federal level to make these things more attractive for foreign investment and and to hopefully drive risk out of the projects if we can find a way to have our local manufacturers compete with foreign manufacturers to set up a big pipeline so investment can come and set up these plants that are going to be sustainable here. Uh, that will go a long way with de-risking projects as well. And contingencies will come down for people like ourselves and contingencies will come down on the developer side and the ratepayers will pay less.
2: Thank
1: you. Could I just add one little thing to follow up on what what Andrew just said, which is just, we've talked a lot about investment here, which is really incredibly important. What we haven't talked about is that we're actually competing for that investment. Canada is not the only country in the world going through an energy transition. Um, It's happening all around the world. And investors are looking to make investments in the places that provide them with the highest, you know, uh, the least uncertainty and and the the highest potential rate of return. So there's a strong interest in increased collaboration in terms of ensuring that we're an attractive destination for investment going forward, um, because we are in a very serious competition for that.
0: Thank you. We are down to our last minute, Pranav. I'd love to give you the last minute to just uh, weigh in quickly before. I Robert up.
2: actually stole my there, and I, I was oh. say, we operate in a global marketplace, and we have to understand both, both, and respect that you know there's other jurisdictions that are less fragmented and they have more clarity around their policy, right? And so, what would, what, why would investors take that risk here? This, this is a question we need to ask ourselves. At the same time, there's other markets globally that have advanced and solved some challenges that we're trying to we're trying to fix right now so there's there's learnings we can take in from them as well to employ and the last thing here that i'd like to touch on is building a set of common assumptions i think is going to be key right between the private sector and how the public sector is is kind of envisioning its path to net zero right so i'll, I'll leave off there
0: <laughs> thank you um, that's all the time we have so a big thank you to our panelists so thank you again stay safe and we'll see you next time Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.